0: invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Romans chapter 8. We're studying through Romans 8 in a series titled Orphan No More. And today we look at Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17, Adoption Not Bondage. I'm going to invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand with a sense of awe as we hear the very words of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Lord, teach us, change us, transform us by the truth of the gospel. May we see Jesus more clearly today. May what we know about Christ and the gospel be made new by the work of the Spirit. May those who are apart from Christ, may they become children of God this very day. We have been reminded in baptism of your power to do just that. And we open your word with anticipation of how you are going to continue to do it. We pray all these things in Christ's name for his glory and our good. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as His Father. Those are the words of J.I. Packer from his classic book, Knowing God, that I would recommend anyone to read. So how much do you make of the thought of being God's child? Of calling God Father? How much do you make of that? How does that govern and control the way you think about your life and your life in this world? Or does it? I fear that many, if asked, What has Christianity done for you? Will answer, My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven when I die. And God is there for me when I need Him. Now, all of those things are good things, right things, true things. But it seems to me that often, in our understanding of what God has done for us in Christ, the gospel is left in the courtroom. That it is the declaration that a sinner is now righteous in Christ and he is free from the penalty of his sins. And the end of the story is heaven. And yeah, I need God sometimes in my life. So so God functions as kind of an almighty judge that pardons us, and an occasional therapist that's there whenever we need Him. And yet the biblical witness is far more rich than that. Certainly it's appropriate to say, what has Christianity done for you? My sins are forgiven. I'm going to heaven when I die. But what about God is now my Father and I am a child of God. Jesus is my Lord and Savior and my elder brother. And the Holy Spirit lives with me. I will always be a child of God. And I have an eternal inheritance. That language is so vital. Because the Gospel does not leave us in the courtroom, the Almighty Judge who declares the sinner righteous in Christ because Christ has paid the penalty for the sin becomes the Almighty God who is now Father. And Jesus, our elder brother, has made it possible, and the very Holy Spirit is at work making it real to us. Why is this so often neglected? Well, it's often not taught. We are so focused on the truth of justification, and rightly so, since it's foundational that we don't get from the courtroom to the family room. But there's another reason as well, and that is that many of us would prefer a somewhat distant and occasional God, as long as we maintain our notion that the end of the story is that we are in heaven instead of hell. They prefer a notion of a part-time God. Some distance maintained, so I can kind of still do what I want to do. But that is deficient. Our failure to apply our lives to the intimate family language of the gospel of Jesus Christ causes us many problems. One is that it causes us a lot of problems in our understanding of the work of the Spirit. You remember last week, if you were had the opportunity to be here, that Romans 8.1, the very first verse of this section, we said is a sentence that summarizes the whole book of Romans. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The no condemnation declaration for those who are in Christ. The summary of the whole book. Now, in Romans 8, there is much attention paid to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Those first 11 verses spoke of the Holy Spirit 11 times in 11 verses. And the Spirit is at work in our lives, performing the vital role of making the truth of Romans 8.1 real to us. Now think about that. It's one thing to say there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's another thing for that truth to govern you, to shape you, for you to delight in it. The Spirit of God is at work making that truth that we assent to real to us. The work of the Spirit, the main thing the Spirit of God is doing is working in our lives to make Jesus real to us and His gospel by confirming your adoption as sons of God. Now, don't get thrown by the language, sons of God. That doesn't exclude women. But the Sons of God language is used because the Son would receive the inheritance from the Father. And the truth is that all who are in Christ receive the inheritance. But the Spirit is at work in our lives, taking truth that we understand about Jesus and the Gospel, and the fact that we are adopted children of God, and making it real to us. You know, most of the time, the issue with us is not new information, but the issue is information that's made new. Somebody comes in for counseling about some situation, usually the person understands the right from wrong, and they're just choosing the wrong, and they know it. The issue is not new information. Oh, I've never heard of that before. I've never thought about that before. I didn't know it was wrong. The issue is how can the truth that they already know be made new? We need the work of the Holy Spirit for that. Jesus said when He was leaving that it was better that He go because the Comforter, the Spirit, would come the unique indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people of God. But if it's true that the main thing that the Holy Spirit is doing is making Jesus and the gospel real to us by confirming the reality that we are children of God by faith, that we are sons of God, that we are adopted in the family of God, then that changes everything. I want you to look with me beginning this morning at verses 12 and 13 of Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul here calls us to live according to the Spirit of grace. Live according to the Spirit of grace. Look with me at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, when he starts there with, so then, if we were going to translate this in the most clumsy, uh, literal way possible, it starts out, wherefore, therefore. It's tethering what he's saying here to what he has said before. What he said before is, there. Are no, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ is for you. And the Spirit is in you. Now that's the truth. Now, wherefore, therefore, are consequently then, how do we live on the basis of that truth? How do we live with a no condemnation? Christ is for it, for us, the Spirit of Christ is within us. Then he says, So then, brothers, the term of affection, for all believers, not just men, those who are the children of God, the Spirit is at work teaching us that we are debtors not to the flesh. You remember the, what the flesh is? The flesh doesn't refer to our physical flesh, but rather our body, but rather the, the sinful nature, the way the A person makes sense out of the world apart from God, the conclusions that you draw, if there was no gospel, we are not debtors, he says, to the flesh, to live, to walk according to the flesh. But that does mean that we are debtors. Debtors to what? Debtors to grace. That's what the whole message is about. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are guilty who are in Christ Jesus now have no condemnation. By the grace of God alone. Debtors to grace alone. Now the debtor language is certainly not saying now we sort of pay back God and, and we do our part. No, it's not that at all. Our debt is to grace Our debt is to the unmerited favor of God that cannot mean that now we start earning righteousness or earning salvation, but rather that we start living out justification by faith alone. We start doing what we do, never offering anything to God as a a means of our own righteousness. But rather we trust in the righteousness of Christ alone And therefore, we live out of grace. The Spirit of God is causing us to never, ever evaluate the world in terms of the flesh alone. Now, in the context of Romans, that flesh language works out two important ways. There are some people who had the law of God, but were still interpreting it through the flesh. And that is, they thought that the law that God had given, particularly to the uh, Jewish people, was a way that they showed that they could work their way up to God. The law was their ladder to determine their own righteousness. Salvation is by grace, because God has given us the law, plus works we do our part. That is a man-centered reality that is not all of grace, that is to be rejected. But for somebody who does not have the law of God, the tendency is to go with your gut, to be governed by your desires. Of course I should do this. Of course I should have this. Fleshly desires. Fleshly self-justification. Fleshly desires. What matters most is what I want. Both of those things are living according to the flesh because they're excluding living on the basis of grace alone. Living based on grace. Meaning that our life is a response to the merciful love of God. The Spirit is always at work reminding us that it is 100% Grace, that we are the no-condemnation community only because of what Christ has done for us. Now, that means a lot of things, but one of the things that we see clearly is that Spirit-filled people don't constantly talk about the Spirit and don't constantly talk about themselves. Now, that needs to be said because there's really true approaches to the Spirit of God. And some people just ignore the work of the Spirit, don't talk about the Holy Spirit. But other people are obsessed with the Holy Spirit in such a way that that's almost all they talk about. But it seems to be that their obsession with the Spirit is using the Spirit like a force for their own personal power. I have gifts that other people don't have. Look at what I can do. Right? That is at odds with the work of the Spirit Himself. The Spirit is making the truth of Jesus and the Gospel real to us. Spirit is a person. And the person of the Spirit has a particular mission, and that mission is not to call attention to himself or for us to use him to call attention to us, but rather for us to make much of Jesus. Well, look at verse 13. All of this begins to clarify. Verse 13 says, "...for if you live according to the flesh you will die. Very simple principle. That if you live based on a world apart from God and the Gospel, and you order your life in that way, the end is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. But look at verse 13 as it continues. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, You will live. The word put to death there is a violent term. Total destruction. The killing of something. The mortifying of something. This is discipleship by death. One of the things that Christianity makes clear is that our gut, our desires... Our inherent longings are not Lord. You don't obey your gut. You obey Jesus. And Jesus most often calls you to things that your gut says, don't do it. You are... Putting to death those things, those desires that are contrary to what Jesus would have you to do. You're at war with them because you are living by grace. You're not at war with them, using them as a tool to show how righteous you are. Your righteousness is the righteousness of Christ alone. You are at war with them because you want to be conformed to the One who saved you. That is... Live accord to the, uh, in accordance with the spirit of grace. Philip Yancey, in one of his books, says, The world runs on ungrace. And believers are in the world living based on grace. What does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body? Well, one very simple thing it means calling sin and evil sin and evil. See, in a world that's marked by so many events that that people look at and they are so wicked and rebellious, they say, what, what, how is there an answer to that? A lot of people live on the basis that people are basically good. And they see what's going on in the world, and it causes this problem within their soul. But we look at the world and we say, we are sinners. Not just that sinners are out there, But we are sinners. And apart from Jesus, we have the root in our heart to commit all kinds of sins. That we don't look at what anybody does and say, I would never do that. That's what Jesus is talking about when He says if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery already. Why? Because your lusting after someone is proof that the, result, the root of adultery is in your heart. And if you acted on that, you would be obeying the desires of the flesh. See, we have a category for all this. And, and, and we call sin, sin and evil. Not just the sin out there, but the sin in here. We are not yet outside of the presence of sin, so we are battling our own indwelling sin. We are actively working against it in our life, not passively. So we're ordering our lives in a way that we are trying to kill the indwelling sin because we believe at the end of the day, God is right and the path of life is to walk in line with the gospel and that means constantly disobeying my gut or my flesh. The war that we are at with indwelling sin. Not to prove our righteousness, but to make much of grace. Live according to the Spirit of grace. Let me put it this way. Sin promises life and guarantees death. Grace brings death and guarantees life. We picture death in the baptistry. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. And then we are at work in our lives, putting to death the indwelling sin, knowing that one day God will remove us in a new heavens, new earth, out of the very presence of sin. As the Spirit works in us to make Jesus and the gospel real to us, that we will live according to the Spirit of grace... The Spirit will lead us based on what is the fundamental reality of being in Christ. And that is this in verses 14 through 17, be led by the Spirit of adoption. What are the marks of being led by the Spirit? They're here. First of all, it's this. Confident sons, not fearful slaves. Look with me at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, understand that connection. Led by the Spirit of God, sons of God. This is important. And by the way, it's something we all struggle with. We all struggle with uh, saying we believe the gospel, but living as though we are servants earning our way and earning our keep. And he says, no, you don't want to think like that. You want to to live as sons of God. The Spirit of God doesn't lead you to live as a fearful slave. The Spirit of God leads you to live as a confident son. Now, when we hear that phrase, led by the Spirit that's not talking about guidance in the way we often think about it. We 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 tend to talk about being led by the Spirit, and what we focus on are those decisions that we have to make where there is no clear directive, and oftentimes there are decisions we could do it or not do it to the glory of God, but our idea of being led by the Spirit is God gives us the details of what we should do. So being led by the Spirit means that the Spirit decides for me which job to take, what college to go to, who to marry, and we could go on and on and on. That's sort of guidance, but that's not what's going on here or what He's talking about. We want details, but God gives us, the Spirit gives us, direction. Gospel direction. It's a different thing. The Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. God says, Abraham, I want you to leave your homeland and go somewhere else. Where? I'll tell you later. God's often not filling in the details. But He's giving us the direction that demands us to exercise faith by which we grow. The truth is, As you struggle with indwelling sin, it would be bad for you to know the details. God grows us through leading us on the basis of direction where we make decisions in accordance to what we believe is reflective of biblical wisdom. Led here means to be directed by, governed by, ruled by the Spirit. It doesn't mean you wake up in the morning and you say, does God want me to make the mac and cheese today or the green beans? It's irrelevant. You can make either to the glory of God. If you're going to make it, just try to make it good. That's not what's going on here. Or does God want me to witness to my neighbor? You don't even have to pray about it. Yes. Oftentimes, we crave stuff like that as a distraction from what the Spirit is really doing. And that is, travel in the direction of the Gospel. Walk in line with the Gospel. I will point you never to make much of the flesh, whether that be a religious pathway of making much of the flesh or an irreligious one. What I'm doing, he says, is convincing you that you're sons of God. That you have an identity as a son. And by the way, this is, this is not a hard concept. A parent who makes, hovers over their child and makes every decision for their child is doing a poor job of preparing to send their child out. A parent guides and directs and backs away at times to see whether or not they're owning these decisions. And, and sometimes they have to step back in. And, and it's that process of leading and directing. But you want them, by the time they go out as adults, to own the way to view the world that you've been teaching them. That sort of, of leading, that directing, will they be governed by? And the issue is, do you say, no matter what I'm facing... I'm a son of God by grace. I'm a child of God. God has committed Himself to me. I have an identity. I'm not in the world alone. It's contrasted with the first part of verse 15. Look with me there. First part of verse 15 says this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons. The Holy Spirit of God is called the Spirit of adoption. You think this is important for the way we see the world? The very Holy Spirit of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is called sometimes the Spirit of God, Sometimes the Spirit of Christ. Here, the title given to the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit is at work saying, you are a child of God. This is by grace. You didn't earn this. This is God's blessing. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will not, Jesus said, leave you as orphans. You see, that's not slavery and fear. That's not performance to earn my keep. That's sonship and confidence. The title is so important, and it's a primary way the Spirit is at work making Jesus and the Gospel real to us. I've told you before a story that I've got countless examples of this, but this one is so direct that it's easy to understand of the older girl that was adopted by a family, and she was fearful that she would never be adopted, and she... Comes home with the family. The judge has made the declaration you're their child, but she's not living based on it yet. So her parents come into her room in the morning. Her room's immaculate. And the girl looks at the parent and says, look at how clean my room is. Can I stay? Those parents didn't go, well, man, this is a good deal. we got a clean room in here. Those parents wept. Why? Because they wanted a messy room? No. A clean room's one thing, but thinking that a clean room is how you perform to stay in the family is tragic. And so they are, you are our child. It doesn't matter what you do. And the first time that child ever didn't clean their room, the parents high fived one another. Right? What's the difference? Well, the judge had made a declaration, but when she first got home, she thought she had to earn her keep, that this was a sort of a slave arrangement. This is servitude. She wasn't yet embracing her child of this family status, that, that you are loved because you are loved because you are ours. And many of us are the same way in the sight of God. We are not, we are not yet governed by our adoption. And, and yet God has given us the very Holy Spirit of adoption. And we act as though the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of slavery where we live in fear of whether or not we will be accepted, received, able to stay. He says, no, this is grace. This adoption is what God has done. J.I. Packer in Knowing God also says this, Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. The entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of it. Sonship must be given the controlling thought, the normative category, if you like, at every point. Our Lord's teaching on Christian discipleship is cast in these terms. Every time you say the words of the Lord's Prayer and you say, Our Father. You are saying something that is scandalous grace. Something that the truth of it changes everything. But I also want you to see in the next portion of verse 15 that this is intimacy, not isolation. God is not... Calling a people out, declaring them righteous in Christ, and then backing away and leaving them alone. This confident sonship is an intimate relationship. Look at the next part of verse 15. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Two words, Father, Father. Abba is Aramaic. Why does he use Aramaic here? Well, in Mark 14.36, this is a way that Jesus spoke to the Father. The spirit of adoption is at work in our hearts, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. Why Abba, Father? That we have the same right and connection to the Father through Jesus as Jesus does. Have you ever thought about the fact that in Christ... That the Father will no more reject you than He would reject Jesus. The Gospel is scandalous! This is amazing! Why do we blunt this? Abba, Father, I can address the Father with terms of intimacy like Jesus did? Yes, because you are one with Christ. You are forgiven. You are a Son of God. And notice the word is the word cry. John Calvin says here, he doesn't just say you can say Abba Father because crying out is a term of intimacy. You cry out Abba Father. There's a desperation that you know that you are crying out in a direction of love. In a direction of fatherly love. This is so needed for every believer and particularly many people who didn't have a father that reflected this very well. That's not a reason to move away from this language. This is a reason to embrace it. Notice verse 16. This leads to assurance, not doubt. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself... Notice, the Spirit is a person, a a person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit Himself bears witness, that is testimony, with our Spirit, that, or the word could be translated, since, we are children of God. Now, is He trying to hammer this home? Why? Because we so struggle with it. The Spirit of adoption indwells you that you cry out, Abba! Father, the Spirit is at work witnessing with Your Spirit that You would embrace the language believing it. What is happening here? The Spirit is making Jesus and the Gospel real to us. We are not just distant people who have been pardoned. We are now children of God. The Holy Spirit of adoption comes to adopted sons. And and comes and testifies together with our spirit. So the degree that we utter, Father, and we have some sense in which we believe it, that God Himself can be called Father by us because of what Jesus has done, what the Spirit is doing within us, then at that sense, it's infusing the assurance that we need into our lives and we are not living in doubt. We are not like the girl sitting on the bed. Have I done enough? Can I stay? Have I done enough that you will love me? The love question was settled on a bloody cross. You don't ever have to doubt it. All who would believe in Him. He pays the penalty for their sin. What a gift this is to us at the point of our struggle. What a deliverance is this is to us who don't have to live to cultivate an image. Verse 17, the first part. This is family inheritance, not orphans. Look at verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Children, children of God, sons of God, there's an inheritance laid up for you. How great is the inheritance? Well, God owns everything and he's the one giving it. And you're a fellow heir with Christ. To clarify here that, that it's not as though Christ has an inheritance that is huge and you're getting a little portion of it. You're a fellow heir with Christ. He's doing everything he can to scream, sons of God, child of God, Abba, Father. United to the Son of God. We are sons of God and heirs of the God who owns it all. Orphans no more, now and forever. Finally, the last thing he says here at the end of verse 17. Discipline, not punishment. Discipline is positive. Punishment is retributive. It is negative. Look at the second part here. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The gospel means strength for the child, the trials that we face as a child of God in the family of God. The gospel does not mean escape from them. Why would we ever think it did? The very symbol of our faith is a bloody cross and a Savior who says, Take up your cross and follow me. When one is in a family and difficult times come, to run away is a betrayal. To forsake family is a betrayal. There is a shaping reality here of family identity, which means sharing not only an in inheritance to come, but sharing in suffering now too. Paul clarifies this elsewhere when he says, I want to be a fellow sharer in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, I am a family member and I will live like it no matter the cost. And the fact that God allows that in our life is not punishment. The term punishment is a hellish term. It's retribution. It's discipline. It's shaping us. It's forming us. It's how we learn better to follow Him in the world. It's good. Because God... Our Father loves us. Well, think about this. Confident sons who have intimacy with God, assurance, family inheritance, and are disciplined out of love, and fearful slaves who feel isolated, doubt, live as orphans with fear of punishment. Now, think about the difference in the way you see the world. The confident son, I get to obey. I get to contribute. I get to be a vital part of this family. The fearful slave, I have to obey or else. The confident son, I expect loving discipline because I want to grow. The fearful slave, I fear punishment because it means isolation. The confident son, I'm free to fail because I know I will be loved anyway and I will learn. The fearful slave, if I fail, I will be rejected. Confident son, I get to love and self-sacrificially love and help others. The fearful slave, I have to manage my image to look good to others. I don't want to be found out. I don't want to be exposed. Are you embracing what the spirit of adoption is at work, attempting to confirm in your life. If in any way you think that salvation is a ladder that you climb up to God, or salvation is just a matter of you deciding what will satisfy your own soul, then you're not a believer. But even believers struggle with living based on this incredible message of sonship. But I've got news for you. It makes all the difference in the world. And just like a child who is a part of a loving family has a sense of security that births a courage the same is true for those who know that they are a child of God to a far greater degree. Are you living based on that great truth? Do you understand that's, that's what Christianity does in the life of a believer? Let's pray.